Hello and welcome to episode 30 of the IoT for All podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Chacon, and today I am joined by our producer, Shannon Lee, who will be jumping in to be my co-host, which is super exciting. Our guest today is Peter Maring, the co-founder and CEO of Zest Labs. Peter leads Zest Labs' efforts in pioneering freshness management solutions for the fresh food supply chain. The company's Zest Fresh solution improves food quality and product margins while reducing waste and benefiting the environment by modernizing the food distribution and delivery systems. On this episode, we talk about Peter's journey to start Zest Labs, the root causes of food waste that prompted him to venture into solving this problem, customer adoption issues and hesitations that he experienced, how IoT solutions help improve labor utilization, the impacts of food waste, and what can be done to curb that issue as a whole and society. And finally, Peter shares some advice for founders and companies looking to solve global-sized problems with IoT. Um, Be sure to stick around after the episode for a quick overview of the key takeaways from this chat. But without further ado, please enjoy this episode with Peter Maring of Zest Labs. Welcome to the IoT for All podcast, Peter. How's your week been going? It's been going great. How about you? Good. Not too bad. It's almost Friday, so that's a positive thing. Um, <laughs> but I just want to give our audience a heads up that I'm joined by by Shannon, our, our producer, as my co-host today. Shannon, do you want to say hi? Hi, loyal listeners. How are you? <laughs> <laughs> so, Peter, I think the best way to start this would be to have you introduce yourself, you know, tell the audience a little bit more about you, you know, your journey to become CEO and founder of Zest Labs and, you know, kind of how that all started and anything along those lines would be quite interesting to learn about. Sure, um, and thanks for having me on the program. Uh, this this yes, is really. great. The um, my background, I've been in tech for a long time, um, and this is actually my fourth startup at to doing it. and And I enjoy it. I enjoy looking and and trying to tackle big problems and finding new ways to approach old problems. is is really what uh, gets me going and and keeps me driving in in the tech industry. Um, Interesting to this conversation, I'd been at a number of different computer companies um, in the late 90s and and early 2000s um, Was with a company called Echelon that did the largest smart grid in the world. Um, It did all of Italy, every smart meter, uh, every connected home, and over 32 million meters. And it was a big project. It took a number of years. But just looking at the scope and scale and how data at that level can really drive a, a countrywide a change in energy usage was really a compelling experience to say IoT, um, how to connect things, really changes things on a bigger scale. And when you want to solve big problems, you need to look at it. How do, how do I make a change at a very low level affect really the behavior of, of millions of people in a, a whole country, um, but at, at you know one residence at a time or one item at a time? Um, that gave me a, a taste of IoT. Uh, in the early days, and it really it translated into when I was thinking I, I worked somewhere. I worked at Apple. Uh, in between this, uh, ran hardware development for Steve Jobs for a number of years. Uh, and when I stepped out of that role and, and actually was looking to retire for a bit, um, I wanted to look at something. What could I do that really gave back? Um, having done work in sustainability and energy efficiency and smart grids. Uh, I was looking towards that area of what could help the environment, and food waste struck me as a huge unsolved problem that it was such a big problem, and in statistics here in the U.S., 30 to 40 percent of fresh food is thrown away, not not consumed. Um, Mm -hmm. Internationally, it can be up to 50 percent. It's just astounding, and in a modern society, any other 
company or job that had that type of waste, people would lose their jobs or, their, or the company would shut down. So understanding and, and, and determining how this problem could be addressed, because it really needs to be addressed, um, really got me engaged again to say this is an opportunity not only to help solve a big problem for the environment, for sustainability, but but by the same tact for business to say how mm -hmm. if you have that much waste, you, you're losing money along the way. Um, and how could we do it? And and the story will go, you know, IoT is is a cornerstone of solving that problem. Right. Yeah. So when you kind of looked at the industry and saw, you know, these high percentages of of food waste, what were you finding as the root causes for for food waste that kind of, you know, prompted the solution you built to, in, at the end of the day, solve? Yeah, I mean, so this does go back 10 years when we started this. And, and early on, the industry looked at cold chain compliances. Is my trailer or my container um, refrigerated and, and consistently refrigerated to the temperature I set it to? And mm -hmm. so we got involved at that level, like, like many companies do, saying, well, yeah, that's, I mean, the belief is if, if I get delivered food that spoils early, that it must have been in the delivery. And, right. and it seemed natural. And so we started down that path, and, and, but we collected data along the way. And, and the traditional method was to collect data at the trailer level or the container level for, for sea shipments. And we decided that's not granular enough. So we collected data at the pallet level. And mm -hmm. uh, a, a typical trailer will have 26 pallets. And we first noticed how much of a discrepancy, up to 35% difference in, in temperatures, pallet to pallet. And so that that didn't seem right. It didn't seem as as uniform as one would expect. But already we were kind of drilling down another level using IoT sensors to say, let's get more granular data and try to find why this problem is happening. Well, as we drilled down more and said, it's a cold chain problem, food spoiling early, and and, and I might in a moment give background on that, but it's temperatures not being maintained, why is that causing such accelerated spoilage? Right. And it turns out that it was not so much the fact that the products were different temperatures in the trailer, it was that they were loaded at dramatically different temperatures and, and their history prior to getting on the trailer actually had more to do with the early spoilage than, than their experience on the trailer. And, and we just kept peeling the onion, just peeling things backwards and, and really looking for the root cause. Um, you know, there's a, a notion in, in science of first principles, root cause analysis, and really finding out what is the cause. And we backed way back up into the, really the science of respiration rates for fruits and vegetables and understanding each different type and what causes it. The interesting background is people assume that shelf life is directly related to quality because when a, when a product spoils early, obviously the quality goes bad very quickly. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so you say, well, that looks bad, it's bad quality. But shelf life is really independent of quality. And, and by that, I mean, if, if you pick a strawberry fresh off a bush and you don't refrigerate it, it will last two or three days at outdoor temperature. But if you refrigerate that same strawberry, it can last 10 to 12 days because you've lowered the respiration rate. What the cold right. chain does is it slows down the aging. And the same quality product can last two or three days when not refrigerated, 10 to 12 days when refrigerated. Clearly, there's an independent mechanism going on that's extending the shelf life. And mm -hmm. 
refrigeration is it here in the U.S., the cold chain, um, but it's not uniformly applied. And so what we found is how you apply the cold chain, maybe sound like common sense, affects that product. But no one tracks fresh food at the product level. They track trailers, they track containers, they track cold storage rooms, but they don't track the products. And, and it, it is a challenge because it's not within four walls like a factory. Um, you, you start the process out in the field when you cut the product. And how can you capture that data? And, and so this is where IoT sensors become really the, the cornerstone of this, is getting the time and temperature of each step of the process at the product level really gives you the insight to say, well, how fresh will that product be? How long will it last? And not just assume, which the industry does today, that all strawberries harvested on the same date will have the same shelf life. That's, that's why you have a date sticker on your products. It's, but the date sticker for everything is the same, regardless of the temperature it was harvested at, how long it took to get it cold, how it was handled. And those differences you know, have that same effect that, in my example, can take two to three days to 10 to 12. Well, if you don't get it right every time, you're not going to get the 10 to 12 days every time. And so that's really the, you know, drilling and, and peeling us all the way back and drilling down into the data really pulled us down to saying we really need to monitor at the product level um, all the way back down to how that product was handled from the very beginning from when it was harvested. Yeah, it's super interesting. So, so when you guys kind of realized that, what was the process you went through to, to build a solution that could monitor the food at the product level and kind of all the way through to, you know, to help solve this problem. Yeah, there were a lot of interesting and practical problems we had to solve along the way. This took us, you know, understanding all of this and, and, and documenting it and really getting it. We actually went through scientific peer-reviewed um, papers on this, um, took about three or four years, really just to nail the science behind it and to really get that accepted. Um, then came the practical problems. How do you scale it? And, mm -hmm. I, and I think that's kind of what you're getting at. And, and how do you make it useful to really not very skilled workers dealing with these pallets every day? Um, they can pick the product, they can drive a forklift or drive a truck, but they don't really want to understand the science or need to. And quite frankly, most of them feel like they've been doing it most of their life in the, in the ag industry. They didn't really need to do anything different. Um, and, and the other challenge in the industry is when the product is picked and when it's harvested and processed, you can have the biggest impact on the remaining shelf life, but it's also when the product looks the freshest. So what you do doesn't have a visual impact until days later. And so you don't get any direct feedback visually. Um, and so they don't know if they're mishandling it by, you know, four or five hours of extra time in the heat or not, you can't see the difference in the first day. So all of those challenges happen and, and it's a practical problem because how do you help them without requiring a lot of overhead or extra labor? And again, what we found is using IoT sensors that are autonomous as they get attached to the pallet in the field, but they're collecting data wirelessly. They, they're collecting you know, when they get to certain decision points automatically and what we found two things. One is first, getting comprehensive data was key. And so it had to be on every pallet. It couldn't just be on sample pallets. Um, 
and and this is true whenever you look at any kind of quality program, you need to know sampling happens if you if you believe you have good quality and, and good uh, uniform distribution and you're just trying to validate it. But if you don't know it, you need to really look at every every item coming in, which is what we do at every pallet. But we have to make that cost-effective and, and easy, no extra labor. And then that lets us report just the exceptions because the software can say, okay, I know what good looks like. Now, when you're not doing it right, I can tell you that pallet individually should be handled differently. It needs a corrective action. Um, and even further, you say, well, th these are very busy places that, that harvest and, and handle and process and, and cool the food. I mean, the thousands of pallets a day. Not only do you need to make it easy, but you need to make it relative to what's going on that day. So having comprehensive data, something that really can only be done with IoT sensors, allows you to say, well, this pallet's bad today. Maybe it's an hour late compared to the other ones. But tomorrow or yesterday, maybe you had so many pallets an hour late that you could only deal with the ones that were two hours late. And so understanding the relative impact of the data you're seeing in the software is really the, a, a critical point to making it usable and effective at a, a scaled deployment. And, and I think that's a, a good advice for any IoT solution is really to say, don't just look at the data you're capturing. When you translate into actions, make them relative to the number of actions that people can actually take. Right. Um, and, and often it's missed because we see the experience of many growers with other solutions as they say they get overwhelmed with the data that they stop using it. And, and they just put it down because they, they, they can't use it and still do their job in a normal fashion. So it's not helping, it's, it's getting in the way. So, so to that last point, um, what other issues did you kind of come across when it came to adoption by um, you know, potential customers and when you would talk to growers who would kind of push back and say, you know, this, this solution is not something they wanted? Is it, is it kind of the educational element? Is it the technology element? Is it a cost element? Is it um, you know, kind of just a fear of change and uncertainty of wanting to change their process? You know, what, what were like the big things that really caused some, you know, people? Because at a, at a you know, to me, who's not in this space, you know, not, not a grower, it, it seems like a no-brainer you would want to do this. But for, for them, I'm sure they always have reasons on why this is something they wanted. So what kind of stuff did you hear? And how yeah. did you, that? Uh, you know, it's funny. It's, it's a bit of all of the above, but but certainly certain aspects outweigh others. And the, the biggest one is, is certainly the first one is it's an education process. They, the growers have a great sense of pride that they're they're growing and harvesting great products for us and, and telling them that they're not doing work so well um, and causing waste further down is they, they have to understand and why what they do impacts five, six, seven days later. And, and they don't really know that. So the education really separate from using any technology is understanding what you do today will determine the shelf life of the product down the road is really just something they, they don't always get their heads around. Um, and at some level, and certainly at, at where bigger decisions are made, they need to understand that. And, and certainly if part of the product adoption, they need to understand that because they have to understand the value of doing anything different, what value that brings, what's their benefit. And their benefit comes down not only 
delivering better product to their customer, but they get fewer rejections, they get fewer problems downstream. That means they they make more money. More of what they grow, they get to sell through. Mm -hmm. They don't see all of the waste. They see some of it. About 5% of the waste happens from the field before it hits the retailer. Okay. But even 5% to them, they're on pretty slim margins is a big deal. And we can dramatically impact that. Um, and, and, and I've shown we bring that down to near to zero and experience with some of some lettuce growers and some berry growers we've worked with. And that's, I mean, they're astounded by that. And, and typically, interestingly, the industry has challenges at the beginning and end of growing seasons. And that's when they get their highest rejects because the product's not always the best quality. But it's also when they get their best price because there's limited availability. And that's exactly where we've shown we can have a dramatic impact is when you really need to do everything right is when the product's just a little weaker. Mm -hmm. um, you and I wouldn't notice it as consumers, but they do notice it as growers. And we've had a grower who told us typically at the end of the season, their rejection rates jumped 10 to 15% of their shipments. Mm. And using our, our approach, it went to zero. They, they had zero rejections. Oh, that's all. So, yeah, it's, it's awesome to hear, but it's really that, that confirmed the education that what they were doing had an impact mm -hmm. on that. And really, that's the key is the education. The other one I'd say is really make it easy to do the right thing. Don't challenge these people. And, don't, and by that, there's a lot of aspects to it. Don't make it extra labor, extra costs. Don't make it extra um, thinking. Just so... Again, the industry was used to giving temperature log data and letting the end user interpret it, saying, oh, well, this temperature went high. It must have had this effect. What we do is we map everything to corrective actions. Right. And the corrective action is specific to the job they're doing. Are they receiving? Are they shipping? Are they driving the truck? So they're, it's really within the scope of, of the decisions they would normally make. You just tell them what's the right one. Um, if you don't mind me jumping in here, I'm curious, and this might be a dumb question, um, but say, for example, you have a strawberry and you also have a cucumber on a truck and maybe they need to be at different temperatures. How do you handle that with the, with your solution? Yeah, so typically what they do in that case is they have um, separations in the truck to manage different temperatures. It's it's less common for long truck trips. As they, they go through a tremendous effort to make them uniform temperatures for the reason you're alluding to, which is it's difficult. Um, but for uh, from distribution to restaurant or distribution to retail store delivery, they often have what they call tri-temperature trailers. And there's a dividing section between the different temperatures. We track it, but the exposure is usually hours, not days. And, and therefore, the impact is less if it's off by a little bit. Uh, the, the biggest you know, faux pas that people do is they ignore it. And they just say, well, yes, I'm shipping cucumbers and I'm shipping avocados, which need to be warmer. They actually get damaged at lower temperatures and strawberries altogether. And, you know, I'm just going to I'm just going to pick a temperature in the middle. Well, that's the worst for all of the fruits right. and vegetables. And, and it happens. Um, that's probably the easiest one to correct. Also saying, look at the impact you're having. Nothing's nothing's surviving well. But it's again, it, it's a challenge. Um the industry has different ways of approaching it. Uh, what I'd say is their bigger impact is getting that first long haul trip done right, which is typically a uniform temperature because it's typically 
from the grower they're shipping uniform product they may mix in cucumbers with lettuce and and asparagus but they'll all be the same temperature profile interesting so as a consumer one of the, the things that i guess i see the most and always wonder where it comes from is this best buy or use by kind of date that's put on the food so how are you guys influencing that date if at all to make it more accurate so it you know hopefully extends the life of the produce being bought by a consumer um and at the same time it it's it's accurate so that the the food is you know does last as long as the date says it does versus um kind of you know coming up short and then obviously being disappointed as a consumer because you're yeah. later to eat it so it is a challenge, and that's part of the education challenge. What it's, most fresh fruit has a harvest date on it, and it implies a best buy date by saying, well, I know strawberries last. When I buy them at the store, seven days, six days past the, the harvest date or, or the day I buy them. What we're trying to help do is you know, build consistency on the product that the grower ships, and when they ship it, accommodate the differences by saying the product that has to ship the furthest needs the most freshness before it's put on the trailer. And the product that's shipped closer can have a little less freshness because it has a shorter trip. Uh, a simple example is uh, fruit trucks now going across the country take five days, even with two drivers. And five days to go across the country is a long time for a product that lasts 10 to 12 days. So when that's prioritized and, and gets there on time, you want to make sure it had the lotus, was loaded with the freshest product available. Right. And, and that's what we do. So you don't get a random mix of product. The some that was mishandled and has only six or seven days of freshness. It may spoil in the store or it may disappoint the customer. We, most of us have had the experience. We bring something home. It looked good when we bought it, but the next day you open the fridge and it looks bad. Right. Um, that's what you're experiencing is that, that currently that random effect of products that's not not measured or managed before it gets loaded on the trailer. So what we do is make that help make that first decision where it's going to ship to. Then that's a critical decision. We call it intelligent routing, but and we sort based on how the product was processed and handled and really what the resulting shelf life will be. And and that's one of the most important character uh, decisions to to avoid food waste is you prevent it, you, you make an intelligent decision early on, you're preventing the waste, you're not reacting to waste later. Uh, we also help the grower build more consistency by adhering to their process steps better by giving them their constant real-time feedback. And we've seen across the board that helps them build more consistent products. So now that date label is more meaningful right. and, and you can trust it because you know that grower, that brand has done a consistent job. So you don't get those those bad surprises. Very cool. That's super interesting. I've always wondered kind of, you know, kind of where those dates come from and what influences them. So the fact that you guys are, it, it's more, you know, as a consumer, you're thinking about it on the surface, but understanding all the little components that lead up to when that piece of produce is purchased, um, n knowing that those pieces are influenced by, you know, the data that's able to be collected by your solution, then that could be more accurate and then hopefully, you know, reduce waste and also create a better experience for consumers. Yeah, we're trying to promote something that's a little different thinking in the industry, which is to really kind of rate either brands or or retail grocers by the shelf life they produce mm -hmm. or provide to the consumer. Um, we're actually just coming out with a white paper and a study next week on that. 
And, it, and we did a survey for four months across the country with different grocers. And we found the variability in shelf life produced at the same store. We did multiple stores from the same chains and so forth. But consistently, the variability was 10 days in shelf life for things like lettuce and six or seven days for berries or mixed salads were some of the worst offenders, the, the bag salads you get. And so the problem really isn't addressed. And, and what we need to do is highlight this, get more education about this is a solvable problem. Mm -hmm. and, and it benefits the store. It benefits the consumer. Uh, but it just has to be prioritized into making, taking an action. And, and interestingly, what we found also is once you take the action, avoiding the waste means it pays for more than pays, five times pays for the, for the solution. Um, I'm curious how you prioritize, you know, that education and, you know, those sorts of things, especially in the agriculture industry with the labor force really migrating from agriculture to non-agricultural sectors um, with, you know, we're on track to hit 9 billion people by 2050 across the globe. How are IoT solutions really helping to improve labor utilization in the industry? And how is, what are these challenges with the labor shortages? Yeah, I, it's a key point in agriculture. You're exactly right. And everything you do has to reduce labor or, or certainly not add labor. But increasing the efficiency is key. So first and foremost, reducing waste saves all of the ingredients to what produced that, that fruit or vegetable, right? So the water, the fertilizer, the, the land, and the labor. Um, but really what we look to do is how do we make them more efficient in their daily operation as well? And like anything else, if you don't have data on it, you can't manage it. and You don't understand where the inefficiencies are. Part of what we do by tracking the product is some way we can bring visibility into how each step of the process, how efficient it is. It, it's not our primary goal. Our primary goal is reducing the food waste. But a secondary benefit is I can now see this crew harvests in a 10-minute cadence. We get a new pallet every 10 minutes. This crew does it in eight minutes. Why is this crew doing eight minutes and the other one 10? What's the difference? How can I optimize? Field to truck or field to yard, you know, truck routes, all of this. We look at the time of every pallet of food and every step of the way, and it brings in optimizations. Um, yard flow, it, it, all of this sounds, you know, like small items, but they all add up to labor savings. Everything that can take a little less time means there's a little less labor involved and there's more time and more labor available to do more things. Right now, the number one constraining item to, for growers to increase their business is labor. And so that's what they prioritize. Um, and so they want to say, yes, I want to run my business efficiently, but I want to also increase my business, increase my revenue. And I have to find a way to use my labor more effectively to do that. Because I know I can't just go hire more people. They're just not available. Howard, so, so I guess that kind of brings into a question a little bit sort of related, maybe a little off topic here, but kind of the autonomous movement when it comes to farming. Um, and is that something that is being viewed in a pretty positive light by the growers that you've encountered because of the ability to increase I mean, it's a cost, but it's a little bit different cost than, you know, manual cost. And it's, you know, it's something that you can program to do what you want. And, and, and that's about it. Yeah, no, I think there's, um, there's a high level of interest and, and fairly quick adoption. Um, <clears throat> I think the challenge in getting autonomous vehicles and robotics, and, and they do exist today in certain crops, is really the, the variety of crops 
require specialized equipment. And, and that just takes longer to, to specialize. But we see a lot of it on the um, pre-harvest side, on the growing, on the, um, the weeding process, on the fertilizing. A lot of that, either it's f autonomous vehicles, there's still someone in the tractor, but it's, it's building in efficiency, or it's in the, um, the equipment attached to the tractor using vision and robotics to more accurately plant or weed or fertilize the product to be more efficient in its use of whatever it's applying. Uh, it's getting a lot of traction. I think the, the biggest challenge they've found to date is harvesting what they call field-packed fruit and vegetables mm -hmm. because it's really the most delicate step and it, it requires some uh, evaluation of when a berry you you pick from the same bush for four to six weeks you're just picking the the ripe berries uh, lettuce is a little easier you're harvesting a whole field at the time right but it does still take some evaluation by a seasoned harvester crew mm -hmm. and and it's probably for what we consider shelf ready food the last thing to get optimized now when you harvest tomatoes to make ketchup or tomato soup um, they've had mechanical harvesters for many years and, and we've worked with those and so there's a there's a trade-off there uh, but and that's why you pay a little extra for that, that right you know shelf ready or or nice tomato or or strawberry gotcha so when you're working with customers um, you know that kind of come to you is, is that a typical style of engagement are they coming and seeking you guys out or are you seeking them out like how how how's that all work um and if you could kind of tie in any you know kind of just real world examples to, to kind of take our our audience through you know that experience that'd be kind of neat yeah no we go out to them anytime you have a new solution mm -hmm. and a uh, a new approach you have to educate people as to why that's good mm -hmm. for them and they, I mean, you'd love them to come to us, and, and that does happen occasionally. Actually, the more we get established in a certain growing region, um, the more word of mouth does help us, but that's not our primary engagement okay. uh, process. So we go out, we, you know, we go to the, the trade shows, we go, we do education pieces on media like this, um, and we, we get our name out there. We call directly also. Um, a, an example would be Costco. We work with Costco today. Um, Costco is kind of unique and to give an example, they, they have, they're a public company, they're very public about the amount of margin, the amount of uh, profit, you know, so gross margin they make from each product is capped at 14%. They make their profit from the membership mm -hmm. dues, well known, and, but that makes them very sensitive to having loss, um, what they call shrink, which is both loss and markdowns of product because they're starting with a much lower margin. Typically in the industry, in the if I go four years back or so, produce got about 38 to 40% margin, one of the highest margin items in the store, uh, because it was unique per, per store. You couldn't get necessarily the same produce at every store. People try to differentiate with it. Very recently, that's changed. The discounters have come into the market like Amazon has when they purchased Whole Foods, they've reduced the price of their fresh food four times in the last year and a half to make it a reason to go to Whole Foods and make it competitive. But back to Costco, they have a lower margin for all of their products, including produce. So they became a bit of a canary in the coal mine. They were an early tripwire to say, if you're really looking at your margin, 
reducing waste can build back margin and profit for your product. Because if you're throwing away, and the industry average actually for, for produce is 15% of what companies buy, 11% they throw away and 4% they lose due to markdowns. So 11% direct waste and 4%, when you're doing a buy one, get one mm -hmm. free, that's a markdown. Gotcha. Um, they're, they're trying to move product because it's not going to last very long. And so that combination says, okay, if you only have 14% margin, you're, you're possibly losing money on these products. So they, they were, we, we went out to talk to them and we said, we can help you. We started telling them we can help you with food waste and we didn't get very far. We went back to them a few months later and said, we can help you with product margin. And suddenly we had a great, great yeah, deal of interest. Money and <laughs> and <listen. laughs> yeah. And so we said, you know, and then, and so part of the education process is they, they said, well, show us. And our first step of engagement is just to sample incoming products for two weeks or so. And we take one sample off each pallet and we typically do this at their distribution or depot level, not okay. at the store level because they get much more volume coming inbound. And we hold it under ideal conditions and we see how long does it last. And, and their belief is, well, it should all last the same shelf life. We, we expect lettuce to last 10 days from when we receive it because it takes us three days to sell it, distribution and sell through the store. And we want, <clears throat> excuse me, we want seven days for the consumer. But then we found, we did a lettuce test and we found that lettuce varied from three days to, you know, I can personally confess to Costco but, lettuce not lasting as long as it should. <laughs> yeah. So, and we all have that, right? And, and especially when you buy in bulk, you suddenly get five heads of lettuce mm -hmm. at once. You, you need them to last longer, right? And, and Costco wants them to last longer. I mean, they're really, you know, they, they make their money when their customers, their members are happy. So they were a good early case to say, we can help. We did that sample. We showed them it was incoming shelf life, not their fault, but what was coming inbound. And then we showed them how we could fix that by then running our product, Zest Fresh on it, and showing them how the consistency went up and, and the average shelf life received running the same sample test was only 9.6 days, which was virtually right. 10 days. So the direct result was they're getting what they want, their waste goes way down, and their consumer satisfaction That's goes way cool. up. Yeah, I mean, I've been, I've gone to Costco pretty much forever, and um, this may be a topic for another day, but I've always wondered how the produce that's not in the refrigeration units lasts, either lasts as long as it, it does, or it's, it just goes bad and they get rid of it, because it's, you know, these pallets are, are pretty tall, and they're just filled with the same kinds mm -hmm. of things, you know, from grapes to, to strawberries to oranges to the clementines. You know, and I, I'll buy a bag of clementines and in you know, there's like 20 some in there. But in three days, they're all too soft to eat. And they're not good anymore. And it's it's kind of frustrating. So I just wonder if that's part, if there's anything to do with maybe the setup of the store, because these things are not refrigerated. They're just sitting out. And I just don't understand how these things last. Yeah. Um, you know, th some of that could be happening. Uh, it, certainly, the the more consistent you can keep the okay. cold, the better right. off you are. Um, I would I would argue, based on our experience over the past few years, that the inconsistency happened before it arrived right at that there. store. Yeah. And it putting it out in the store, even a pallet of clementines or a pallet of product, they they probably do it because they know they'll sell through that yep. pallet that day. And so the impact isn't that great because it's been less than a day. And for consumers that come in the morning, they get it home into their refrigerator by the afternoon. Um, 
you know, I would be a little wary of picking up the last ones on the ground, but they they know. And the other benefit is they've been in cold storage, so we call it they're, they're soaked mm-hmm. in cold, that they even at, at room temperature, they don't get gotcha. warm that quickly when the core of that pallet gotcha. is cold. The bigger problem is when you harvest them and it's 85 degrees out in harvest, now they're what they age at is called their respiration rate. They're aging very fast at a high temperature, but they started at that temperature. They didn't start at 34 gotcha. degrees. And so that, that combination is, I, I don't think it's really the issue of, of the store location as much as it is the variability we see of what okay, they receive. That's fair. Yeah. That'd be interesting to see kind of how things change over time. I mean, obviously you guys are now working with them and um, you know, so your solution is now tied yeah. to it. So I'd be curious, you know, I'm, it seems to work really well, so that'd be that'd be a great thing, at least as a consumer standpoint. Yeah, a, another anecdote in that area is a big impact happens, and we all like the convenience of bag sure. salads um, because they're already mixed, and you can get what you want, and you know it's washed, and and so in in bag salads, uh, a couple of years back, most grocers went to putting them in um, freezer cabinets with glass doors because they have a high degree of waste. Those waste items are 35, 40%. Uh, Because anything cut fresh fruit or vegetables just has less shelf life because it's losing um, moisture through the cut edges. But everyone understood that. And so they thought they would solve the problem by upgrading their displays not to be open so that a bag salad could sit on the shelf for two or three days. It would be kept more uniform temperature in in a cabinet. Again, glass doors so you could see it. But and and when they did that, they didn't see any change in waste. And so again, it highlighted for a different reason, but it highlighted that it was the delivered freshness that was really affecting that experience, not not the gotcha. store display. Interesting. Very cool. So um as we kind of kind of get towards the end here, I wanted to pull back and talk a little bit more high level about just the food waste issue that you brought up, 30, 40% of of what we produce is wasted and internationally it's up to 50%, which is insane to me. I never knew that. Um, so that's kind of fascinating to learn, but I guess what are the impacts of food waste in general, just to kind of someone who maybe doesn't understand it well enough. Um, and outside of, you know, producers using your solution, what can be done to curb that issue? Maybe taking it from the approach of a consumer inside their home or businesses, um, like what kind of, you know, just kind of breaking it down from the impacts of food waste and then kind of what can be done outside of, of, of just obviously the, that angle. Yeah. Well, there, there are very direct impacts to food waste. I mean, number one, obviously, is the, the resources that went into that food. And I'm, we're in California. Water is a, a very, you know, managed resource for us where we never have enough water. And, and it's also kind of the garden basket for the U.S., probably also unknown is 99% of broccoli comes from California and 95% of lettuce. And I mean, for, for many, many products, California is a source of, of fresh fruits and vegetables. Um, and, and if you're constrained on water, finding ways to use it more effectively is certainly key and not wasting it. I mean, obviously putting water into these products and then have throwing them away later is, is a direct waste. So all of the components that are required to grow and nurture and, and harvest um, are, are wasted items. The one that's probably not recognized as well is the impact it has on our environment and actually in greenhouse gases. Uh, produce waste and fresh food waste in total 
is a major contributor of greenhouse gas because as it decomposes, it produces a number of greenhouse gases, including carbon dioxide and methane and others. And a study was done years ago, and I'm, I'm forgetting exactly, it was one of the um, environmental groups, but they, they ranked uh, greenhouse gas emissions due to food waste as the third largest contributor if it ranked as a country behind US and China. 8% um, of our greenhouse gases come from decaying fresh food that's put into, into waste and, and landfill. And so that's a major impact. And so understanding that, number one, that's avoidable in two ways. One is obviously our approach, preventing the waste from the beginning. That's the most impactful. But then even what many people call repurposing or redirecting the waste, um, once you recognize it, there will always be some waste. And so understanding how you can repurpose it, first and foremost for people, hungry people, if you understand things are getting near the expiration date, maybe re repurpose a food for uh, a food bank or a shelter. I'm a, a huge supporter of that aspect. Um, if it's maybe past its waste, you can repurpose it for mm -hmm. animal feed. That has limited a plate. You have to be near a farm, of course. Um, but another one that's getting a little more attention nowadays, and it's being done in some areas, is they're using it actually as an input for energy generation with anaerobic digesters. Um, and it, that sounds like some weird technical thing, but it's, it's really been a proven method to generate energy. You, you, I mean, unfortunately, you need a sufficient amount of waste, and so it, it, typically those are built near bigger cities. Uh, but it's a way to convert that food waste into something positive energy and not contribute to the greenhouse And the greenhouse gas. gas carbon emissions are just rising daily. So, you know, with the future of IoT and agriculture, how is where do you see it going? How do you see it helping with those issues? Um, and what advice do you have for founders or companies looking to solve global po problems with IoT? Um, you know, I think we all have to do our job. I mean, this is back to the, you know, uh, think globally, but act locally, track, make day-to-day -day decisions that are, are more efficient. I'm, I'm a big believer in that and as part of our day-to-day -day routines. That said, we need to also help influence those decisions for stores, for governments, for restaurant chains. And, you know, you see examples of that where they do highlight their behavior, um, whether it's sustainably caught fish or organically grown produce. But now let's, let's, you know, focus on waste and what do you do to reduce waste? Restaurants, a lot of the waste is, you know, serving sizes and what they call plate waste. Um, and not the waste in the kitchen, but it's really because of serving size. We'll find ways to do that more efficiently um, and produce less waste. So I, I think that's a big part of it. I mean, obviously, we're, we're doing what we believe is right. We're, we're, we're putting our, you know our time and energy into promoting something that does help a business. We've learned, and this is part of what any IoT startup should learn. If you're trying to do something that's proactive and good for reasons for the environment, for sustainability, for society, you need to match that and overlap, overlay that with what's good for a business. Um, just like I pointed out to Costco, we knew we could help them reduce their waste, but not until we pointed out that it helped them in product margin was it really actionable? And translating it, and we don't have to say that everything that's good for the environment has to cost you money, has to make your business harder or something. You can have a win-win solution. And, and finding those is really the key 
to really getting adoption and, and being successful. Um, and I think not only in IoT, but in general for behavior as well, is finding if you change your behavior, maybe you can have a better outcome eating healthier, eating less processed food. Um, throwing away processed food has even more cost and impact to the environment because there's more energy and cost that went into that food. And so all of these things have uh, direct impacts on, you know, on the planet and, and on our daily, daily lives. Yeah, that's great advice. Um, I think that's probably a good place for us to stop today. The one question I guess I would wrap up with is if listeners, you know, are interested in learning more about what you guys are doing, maybe kind of follow up on any questions related to topics we talked about today, what's the best way for them to engage with you or maybe the company um, from there? Yeah, I'm open to engaging. I, we have a very healthy resources page on our website. Um, this is part of our process to educate. And not only do we have a lot of our own well-written white papers, but we, we link to others and we post other white papers um, from the NRDC, from uh, ReFed, from others to, to really help educate people what they can do to avoid food waste. That is our central theme um, to build efficiency in our food supply chain. Mm -hmm. uh, but we anything we th think is helpful in educating, we, we put there. Um, I mean, we also look to engage, you know, you can directly engage us through our website as well, and, and we will respond. Uh, I think the, you know, the answer for people to, to, to do this is to really, the biggest influence is what you could have is where do you buy your food, um, whether it's a restaurant or a grocery store, is asking them what they're doing about this. And the more people that ask, the more they're likely to take some action. Very cool. That's great. Well, look, Peter, we really appreciate your time. Thanks for being on the show with us. Um, hopefully have you back, you know, sometime in the future as, as you guys keep growing and doing awesome things to help save the planet. And, you know, seems really exciting to us. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, this whole world of IOT is very exciting and um, glad, glad you're highlighting this in your, your webcast here. Yeah, no, we, we really appreciate it. Yeah, we think it'll be a good episode. We've learned a lot. At least I did. I know Shannon probably did as well. Yes, definitely. <laughs> um, so I think our audience will really enjoy it. Um, so thanks again for your time. Great. Thank you. All right, everyone. Thanks again for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the IoT for All podcast with Peter Maring of Zest Labs. Now, I wanted to share our top three takeaways from this episode, something we started doing on episode 29, and people seem to be pretty big fans, so we wanted to continue to do it. All right. The first takeaway, uh, one of the biggest things we felt was interesting was what Peter mentioned. When you want to solve big problems, you need to look at things um, and ask yourself, how do I make a change at a very low level affect really the behavior of millions of people? And this connected with us because oftentimes many people approach solving problems from too high a level or they bite off more than they can actually chew. And sometimes it takes a full evaluation of the process to really be able to put your finger on the real level of where impact can actually be made, not maybe where you initially think it can be made, to influence the overall issue and solve that problem. So the process Peter talks about that he went through to figure out that he needed to go to an even more granular level to the product level to really begin solving this problem was something that we thought was really interesting. Secondly, the education process needed to help with customer acquisition. This is often an overlooked step anytime a new solution is brought into an established market like food production with the growers. Just because the selling points on the surface may seem like a no-brainer to you and I, 
um, are not always the case when you actually talk to the potential customer. You need to really put yourself in the perspective of the potential customer and learn why they may be hesitant. Is it because they fear change? Maybe the ROI is not high enough for them. Um, Maybe they're more budget conscious, et cetera. There's many, many reasons on why this could be the case. So until you really know your intended customer and what value props really matter to them, you will have a tough time connecting with them to see the value your solution can actually provide. And oftentimes in IoT, it starts with education, which is often undervalued. It was very clear the time Peter and his team took to understand the market, understand the potential customers and end users to be able to finally speak their language and start acquiring customers. That truly helped him connect with them to get them to a point where they were open to see.